Hello, and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma. I'm a director at Softway, a business to employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that help build resilience and high performance company cultures. Today, I'm also joined by President and CEO of Softway, Mohammed Anwar. Hey, Mo. Hey, Jeff. And uh, we are going to be continuing today our Love as a Humanizing Initiative series. And we're now in the third episode of diving deeper and deeper into this intricate breakdown of workplace cultures. And in the last episode, part two, we really dove pretty deep about the problem statement. We talked about really understanding what we've learned so far as a society in our cultures and the workplaces and why it's problematic. And today we wanna to take the next step in the process we talked about of learning, unlearning and relearning. So today I really wanna actually talk about unlearning and relearning. And I'm super excited to of course, bring back the humanizing initiative. Uh, the, co the four co-founders, of course, Dr. Shaista Kilji, Jason Smith, Mia Amato, Caliendo, and Zoe King. And once again, we're going to use some icebreakers that none of us have seen yet to start us off. And once again, Mo, I'm going to start oh, with no. you. Okay. <laughs> so, Mo, if you had your own late night talk show, who would your first guest be? Oh, love that. Oh, you want, to pass it to, might... you want to pass it to one of these people? No, please don't. <laughs> Actually, uh, my answer would be Coach Tom Herman, uh, mm. who is the University <laughs> of Texas football head coach, and he formerly was University of Houston um, head coach of our football team. That I would definitely bring him on. Bring him on as our first guest. Well, I know why. I think the the story behind it is too long to cover in an icebreaker, but. Um, I think it's in one of our other, other episodes. It, it has to be. It must be. Yes. It must have already. Yeah. So um, someone go find that and tell me where it's at. Uh, <laughs> next one goes to Zoe. What is the best book you've ever read? Oh, that's tough. This one comes to mind. So I read Educated by Tara Westover. Oh, and I couldn't put it down. It's such a gift to be able to read about experiences that are so different from your own and i just i devoured it so that's definitely one of my one of my favorites so do you you, you do know that she's a university of cambridge graduate yeah mm -hmm. and there I thought, you go it was such a beautiful story even yeah. our executive producer in chat is writing all caps yes to that answer so good answer <laughs> mia how much coffee or tea do you drink in a day? I start my day with two shots of espresso and a little bit of oat milk before I work out. And I've at this point in my life, that's as much as I try to have. Prior, there were multiple there were multiple afternoon coffees, but I've tried to be uh, healthier, especially because like Mo, I value sleep. And I found myself wired at like 10 o'clock at night and I would also work late. So um, just just two shots of espresso in the morning now. Good for you. Awesome. Jason, what does your morning routine look like now that you're working from home? 
coffee for sure. First thing, um, uh, what I come downstairs and if I'm not early enough, then before I get my coffee, I'm assaulted by two children. <laughs> um, and it's all sorts of different things. Like, like, would you look up the thing about Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild or something <laughs> that like uh, my daughter has had a dream about that she's like mad at me for. Um, <laughs> and, and, then, and then if I can get the coffee, I'm usually pretty good. Um, and then I usually start work uh, after, after that point and try to get a run into at some point. Nice, nice. Last but not least, Shaista, what was your very first job? Wow. I started, uh, my first career was a banker, actually. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot about financial industry. Um, so right out of school, I was uh, selected to be a management trainee. And uh, I learned all about investment banking, trade, commercial banking, um, consumer banking. And then I was placed in trade. So um, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I learned a lot that I should have learned. And I learned a lot that I shouldn't have learned as well. <laughs> <laughs> well did what you, a did great you, did segue. You, did you unlearn those things? Right um I did by learning a few things. You learn to unlearn those things that you learned. <laughs> well, definitely most unexpected answer award goes to Dr. Kilji here for that one. So let let's let's dig in. Uh, as I mentioned, we have you know if you're listening and you're not you're missing a little bit of context. We 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 broke down very fully in 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 part two about where cultures are at right now you know not not obviously every organization but we talked about even just as a society where cultures are what have we learned to do as 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 a society when it comes to culture and treating each other as humans and we've identified that there's a there's a problem there's a gap there and so what we kind of set out to do for this episode is to really talk about unlearning We've, we've learned over decades how to do business in one way. And now we're looking at how to unlearn it. And I love starting with you, Shaista, because you seem to have a very good way of putting it all on the table for us. So can you uh, just start us off with what does it look like? What, what do we mean when we say unlearn in this context? So I think we talked about in our previous podcast about this idea of balance. So, um, and we talked about cultures, how we have perpetuated, promoted certain values and certain uh, certain values which are deeply entrenched in our cultures. So I think bouncing off the same idea, uh, I would say a few things that uh, we need to unlearn is that the world um, doesn't exist, or we should not um, adopt binary thinking. Uh, binary is not being helpful to us. For example, getting more profits doesn't mean that we cannot live our lives with purpose. Uh, creating shareholder value doesn't mean that we can't create stakeholder value um, as well. 
So I think we have to step out of those boundaries and think about both. Um, and uh, the term that I would use in order to sort of, of all of us to think about that balance is to engage in paradoxical thinking, ying yang, right? Both of them can coexist. Profit does exist, we all know that. But along with it, a purpose can also coexist. Shareholders are important, but along with that, stakeholders can coexist as well. So instead of looking at um, uh, uh, or adopting an either or thinking, we should be uh, integrating our perspectives and think about both at the same time. But even I would go even further um, and talk about how there are different permutations on each of those dimensions or polar opposites that we consider to be, right? So one um, pole we have profit, on the other pole we have purpose. There are so many different permutations along that dimension. And if we start thinking about as leaders, if we start thinking about those different permutations that would help us move from one to the other uh, in a harmonious fashion, um, I think that would be the beginning of uh, changing the culture um, that we so much pr have promoted um, in our organizations and even within our economies and societies. Awesome. Jeff, during my uh, research on post-colonial theory, and I was trying to think of how we could solve for some of the inclusion diversity challenges that we face today, Ming Jer Chen very is exactly what Dr. Kilji is saying, and he talks about the middle way. And the middle way, as we all know it, most obviously can be this, this visual of the yin and yang, but it's important to note that you can't have the yin without the yang. So it's not A and B, it's that A needs B to exist. And so paradoxical thinking is really about being able to understand how there are two points on the same spectrum and you have to understand that one needs the other and finding that balance is where the middle way comes in, sort of that both mm. and versus either or. So just to make sure I get it right, it's not so much like where left or right on the scale you are, it's more of how much you can integrate both ends into one thing. Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely. Yes. And also and realize, go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna say, and how you can flex. You're not, it's not static. It's very much changing and evolving all the time. So you might go on one side, swing back to the other, be in the middle. It's, I, I see Dr. Kilji rocking with me as I say that. <laughs> but it, it, it's just, it's not static. We can't be in this like singular location. You, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> it's how many places this shows up. So I love like talking about, you know, either or thinking and, um, from so I'm a leadership coach and I work with a lot of folks and, and we talk about polarity and how polarity shows up in, in leaders uh, and and so you've got these two values right and they're they're in con they're in contrast to each other and there's a human tendency to move toward the poles and really where we want to do is hold the healthy tension between the two and then if we add another kind of school of thought on this there's this idea of like non-dualism 
where if we do hold the tension between the two of them, then we've actually created something brand new, which is kind of awesome. It's definitely a mindset mindset shift for me to think that way. And the first thing that comes to mind, um, and I'll pose this to Zoe, I think when it comes to this new way of thinking, though, and trying to bring it back to this unlearning that we need to do to solve this existential problem here, what specifically is the A and the B are we talking about? What are the poles that need to, like, what do you... What are we saying we need to find that balance in? Yeah, I think it's it's so hard for us to, I think, especially as adults, to just embrace ambiguity and the great and but that these two things can, like we were talking about, these two things can coexist. And I, I really do think that it, it's coming from, and as we talk, we're talking about on learning, it's that we're so rigid as we, you know, go through life and we accumulate these experiences, um, it, it becomes harder and harder for us to incorporate uh, new ways of learning kind of into our, our schema and into our, our minds. And uh, Jack Meserau has a really great uh, adult learning concept, transformative learning. And it's all about how do we as adults unlearn the ways that we have looked at the world our assumptions, our expectations. And that all starts with this idea of a disorienting dilemma. And that's when you are confronted with, with information that is in direct contrast to what you uh, believe, to what you have grown to know is true for you. And I think with the A and B, it could, it could be just the very fact of A and B can exist. You know, the A and B has never existed for me or a and B, I, I've been told that A and B cannot exist together. But when we uh, encounter an example where A and B are coexisting and they're very much both in alignment, uh, that's disorienting and it's uncomfortable because we have that cognitive dissonance. And so when you have that, that episode of cognitive dissonance and that dilemma, you have you know two options. You can assimilate the information so you can throw it to the side, reject it, say that this doesn't make sense with what I know to be true, or you can accommodate it. And we always want to be in that accommodating space. And I think that that's such a lesson that we can uh, glean for leaders is how when we are confronted with these disorienting dilemmas, these uncomfortable conversations where we start to look at, well, we've always done it this way, but maybe we can do it in a new way. How do we start to accommodate that new information and start to make new meaning? And I think that you know, the process of unlearning in general, I think is such a, an underutilized muscle for leaders and for organizations. And I think it could really help us to navigate change and um, instability so much easier if we started to learn how to get more comfortable with those kind of disorienting cognitive dissonance episodes. I, I would give examples of... Um... You know, oftentimes we look at individualism and collectivism, right, as uh, two polar opposite. And um, we know that the balance is towards individualism in most organizations, right? So um, you're in it for your own self. Your self-interest is more important than anybody else's interest, um, which I also refer to as shareholder interest or 
versus stakeholder interest. Um, and when you're in that mode, you're not thinking about collective well-being. You're not thinking about um, how you make profit and the kind of impact that it has on your team, on people within your organizations, on the community, on the planet, right? Um, and who said that individualism and collectivism have to be polar opposite of each other? Uh, we have to integrate the two in order to develop societies uh, that uh, offer or promote individual dignity, but also collective well-being. Another example, another example would be failure and success. Who said they're polar opposite? Who said that failure is, is, uh, is bad? Um, I look at failure and I think of failure in terms of success in the making. Hmm. Uh, why can't we use our failures to learn uh, to succeed? Uh, why do we shun people who have failed, who we think, because we judge, we love to judge others, who we, uh, uh, who we feel have failed and we don't want to hire them or we don't want to work with them or we don't want to write with them. Uh, if you have an attitude that you can learn from your failures, as I said earlier, failure is actually success in the making. You know, I, I love that that concept of, of failure um, as as being something that is is tied to success. And and I think one of the things that really uh, shaped me was uh, it was an article, and I'm completely blanking on the name of it, but it was really talking about like in our volatile and certain complex and vigorous VUCA world failure isn't something to be avoided failure is something that is inevitable and if you think about it that way then it's like it's kind of like if i'm going out for a walk like if i'm going out for a walk like i know i'm going to step in one hole on this walk like i can choose which hole i step in i'm going to step in the shallowest hole i'm not going to step in the one where i get my foot all wet and so like designing failure into organizational process i think is important i mean like let's try and fail here because we know that it's not going to have as big of an impact or that we can learn the most from it um, I know I love that. This is this is great. I I'm going to keep challenging you guys. I love this stuff. And I'm getting good stuff out of it. So when when we're talking about this mindset you're setting up for me, of these things don't have to be polar opposites. That we can uh, what? But what's the process in getting to that? What does it look like to to turn something that is currently an opposite into something integrated and coexisting? So um, I'm going to be a little philosophical here, but I think it's needed because I also believe that when you think about leadership, it's not about leadership practice, but it's about leadership wisdom. The difference between practice and wisdom is that practice is all about competencies and skills which is great, I'm not against that, but uh, what I'm proposing is also wisdom. So when you practice or you gain skills, you think those are the only skills for you to lead effectively. And I also sort of question the idea of effectiveness, which we're not going to discuss today because I'm gonna digress. Um, uh, uh, but wisdom is when you know something, but you also doubt it. And I think in this um, very, very strong masculine culture that we have, um, we, we just feel that uh, when you know something, you know it all. We never doubt it. And I think doubting is so important in our own personal development 
whether you, we are a leader, formal leader or not. So I would, you know, sort of uh, think about uh, challenges to think about not only leadership practice, but also leadership wisdom, where you know things, but you're constantly doubting. Why are you doubting? Because doubting is important for your learning. Because when you know it and you think you know it all, you're done with it. You don't, you don't open up your mind. But when you doubt, you reflect. Mm -hmm. And when you reflect, you learn. So going back to your initial question, what is it that we need? Um, I think we need to understand that as leaders, uh, whether in the political world or in the business world, uh, we should be in a constant state of becoming. What does that mean? Uh, that means we should be open uh, to learning. We need, should be open to seeking, seeking information because the world changes so fast. Nobody predicted COVID-19. Nobody predicted what we experienced or one, went through in 2020. Right, so you need to constantly be proactive, or if you're not proactive, constantly seek information that helps you challenge yourself, that helps you learn. Second thing, you need to sense. Once you seek, find information, you need to sense. What does that mean? You need to constantly reflect, um, and you need to be critically thinking. You're not only seeking information so that you can believe it, but you're seeking information so that you're critically thinking about it. And thirdly, you're sharing knowledge, right? You seek, you sense, but you also share knowledge. And when you're sharing, then you're moving towards more um, uh, collectivism that I talked about previously. And if you look at all those three elements, seeking, sensing, and sharing, you cannot do it alone. You have to, you, you probably are doing it for yourself, but you're also doing it for your community and you're not doing it alone because you're doing it in collaboration with so many different individuals, so many different people, so many different units, so many different organizations because you are in this constant state of becoming. I'm gonna give our listeners some time to rewind about three and a half minutes and take some notes because <laughs> that was some solid gold. And welcome back. Uh, welcome back on your second <laughs> listen through. Uh, that was amazing. Thank you for that, sharing that. That was just nuggets and nuggets of, of wisdom, which I'm going to doubt a little bit. Um, <laughs> did it. You got it. You got did it. I do it. Did I do it right? Okay. Just kidding. Um, but, but yeah, oh my gosh, so much to, so much to break down there. Um, but, you know, as I keep considering like what this looks like, what all that looks like as I continue to pull us into like the tangible world, you know, are there examples of literal things to do and tips to actually apply, you know, maybe just a story or an anecdote here of that process coming to life? Dr. Toji, when you talked about doubt, I thought a lot about curiosity and kind of, um, you know, time for introspection and time to kind of examine things in a different way. And I think in, in the way that we currently 
kind of structure work, there isn't a lot of time for that inward introspection, that time for curiosity. And I um, was at a professional development session and, and um, the organization was talking about how they provide employees just with structured time where they ask them to just explore. And that could be uh, you know, a professional development opportunity that could be taking a yoga class, that could be reading a book. But the fact that the, the organization had really um, institutionalized this idea of structured time to be unstructured and to be curious. And I think that's kind of when we start to see, you know, that having that opportunity to, to doubt. And I think that, you know, in our, in our work, we're, we're so on autopilot and we rarely get those moments to reflect and to, um, you know, really think about what it is that we do because it, it's not, it's not necessarily efficient, but I think as leaders, how do we start to kind of build that into our practice to have time to be creative, to be curious, to be messy. And I think that's kind of when we can start to break down that wisdom and those, um, you know, that A and B of, of what we think is and what might not actually be. I think from a, like a process perspective, um, it, taking it back to transformational learning, I mean, you know, I think the way that leaders really embrace this idea of not knowing of the ambiguity of, of being open to being wrong and finding a new way is it's really leaning into that disorienting dilemma and it's leaning into um, adversity because adversity is oftentimes that is what causes a disorienting dilemma. You're, you're, you're presented with information or a situation that, that, that says like, oh, the way I'm doing things or the way I'm thinking about things isn't enough. There's a better way. And then you're presented with a choice. Like, do I stay in the current that we kind of recognize maybe is a little bit smaller than it needs to be? Or do I, do I try to move and bridge this gap to the new thing? Um, and I think that it takes courage to, to bridge that gap. It takes support, like coaching, like Zoe said, reflection, to be able to think through and to be able to, to see the things that you can do to move into that new place. And I think that in, for the sake of, right, like what, so what? Um, if we bring in a concept around adult development theory, so this is a concept, it's a very simple concept. It's that adults progress through predictable stages of development, just like children. Um, we are, we need a series of transformations for leaders to really mature, to, to have that wisdom, to be able to work with all the complexity that we're, that we're with, instead of shunning it, or pretending it doesn't exist, or presenting a simplistic response to it that is going to fail. That's really what I think what we're missing is organizations that do that, 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 that utilize the workplace as a place of transformation and that create experiences that, that move leaders toward a place of maturity. Mm. So Mia, what does relearning look like? Boom, put you, you know, on the spot. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, you know, like some of the things that I was thinking about as examples, I mean, Michelle wrote, Michelle Obama wrote a whole book about becoming and how she had to continue to evolve throughout her life and all these different stages of her life and what, what experience she's had, what challenges she's faced. But I also think about um, cultures 
how much cultures evolve over time, given what happens at different times in, you know, in their existence. And so I think that learning is essential because one, it's about survival. You know, we have to adapt to be able to progress and evolve. But I think it, it, it's really dependent on what it is we're trying to accomplish. And what it is we're trying to accomplish is also dependent on what it is we define is a successful version of that accomplishment. And I think that kind of goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier is how do we, wh what do we reward? And, you know, in a lot of organizations, you see rewards being based on individual performance. And I think that's shifting. There's a lot of um, uh, research out there about how organizations are shifting and looking at team performance and that's how things are being rewarded. So I think what we need to learn is that no one person works in a silo and we have been so individualistic in how we work. And I think that that comes from a division of labor. You see that in bureaucracy. And while I think that stems from a place of trying to div divide and conquer, if you will, it's also being a, a huge detriment to a very big part of our community. This might not resonate with everyone, but I think a lot about agile as a, as a yes. business process. Um, something that if you understand what it's really supposed to be, it's built off of values and principles that are very much aligned to what we're talking about. But in practice, many businesses take it and they just try to add it on top of what they currently do. So they skip the unlearning part. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the best analogy in my mind of what unlearning and relearning, how that's different from just learning. Because you can take something like Agile or Scrum, whatever you, whatever other process, which inherently requires a mindset shift and a, and a real change in behavior in teams um, and team structures. You have to change it all to make it successful. It's written in the bylaws of it, right? But you, you'll see organizations see, oh, that's, that's the new trend that's working, that's it's shown to prove results. So let's learn Agile. And they'll bring it in and they'll do all the ceremonies. They'll do all the processes. They'll, they'll call people scrum masters. They'll give new roles to people. But they change nothing else about their culture and their behaviors. And to me, that's what stands out as that critical step of unlearning that has to happen to be successful. If you don't stop and first say, hey, let's look at all, let's introspect on all the things that we need to first un unpack, unravel, and discard in what we currently do, all the things that are hurting and harming us, and then add this layer on top, um, you end up with, I mean, when I see this done, it's, it's a complete mess. It's a lot of money spent. It's a lot of time wasted. It's a lot of people frustrated. It's in a lot of times worse than it was before you started trying this change. Um, so that's, that's, that's my kind of, you know, I come from a project manager background, things like that. So I, I will always go towards these types of examples, but that's what is coming to mind for me. And yeah. I think it's an agility at scale. I think it needs to be able to expand. So, and, and which kind of goes back to it being agile because it needs to be able to evolve and change as it goes. So it's something that's not so rigid. And I think a lot about this idea of purity this idea that, you know, when we have a concept or we have a plan, 
that it's, it has to be pure and has to stick to this, Mm -hmm. this schedule and it has to stick and like this ability to be flexible and to shift gears. If you might have to, to be, you know, to sort of attain what that goal is, there's not a lot of room for that. And while, you know, you know, Zoe mentioned ambiguity and has how as adults, we don't, deal well with ambiguity because we've gotten used to the way things work. And as we've gotten older, we've learned how things work and those things change. So not just agility, but protecting its ability to evolve and scale. Mm. And I want to, I want to go back to this idea of um, unlearning, right? Um, And um, uh, Jeff, I really liked what you said. You have to discard um, what you've done or how you've done things. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm going to give you an example here. Um, and I'm going it's to, it's a hypothetical example, uh, but that might actually help us uh, understand this idea of unlearning and how crucial it is because without unlearning, we cannot uh, learn something new or we cannot learn to behave in different ways. Um, so if I'm... Um, if I'm a leader, I'm used to working with a lot of freedom, with a lot of autonomy. Um, and whosoever my boss is has given me that immense amount of freedom and autonomy to do things. Let's say I've, pro- uh, uh, I've developed this new product, which is a, one of the star products in my company. And I'm known for creating that product. Um, and I thrive on that independence and freedom and autonomy that is given to me. And then um, I have a new boss. And the new boss uh, works very differently. Uh, The new boss wants to be more involved. Um, And let's say the new boss walks in, gets very frustrated with my way of doing things because I know that I've been successful. I know how to be successful. And the company is successful only because uh, of a product that I've created, right? So even if I'm working on a new product, I just wanna do it my own way. I wanna do it in my own silos with my own team and this new leader, new boss of mine um, wants more involvement. Um, and um, so rather than engaging in this uh, sort of um, uh, conflict, uh, conflicts can be good. I, I don't think conflict is the right word. Rather than engaging in this battle of two personalities, um, one uh, is trying to get more involved, the other person, which is myself, I think, you know, I work with autonomy. I love this freedom. Um, if I switch uh, my mindset and think about uh, what is it that my boss wants? How is this boss different from the previous boss that I've had? The previous boss gave me a lot of freedom, autonomy, rather than thinking about my own need, which is more freedom and autonomy, let me think about what is the need of this new boss of mine. And what I find out when I ask the right questions, so you have to learn to ask the right questions because that's very important in the process of unlearning. I find out that the only thing this new leader or new boss wants from me is more involvement and more respect because um, uh, they feel that I do not give them the respect that they deserve, right? So uh, by recognizing others' needs uh, along with your need really helps you come to a better place. And then you can uh, develop this relationship where both of you can collaborate um, and can be more successful, really. So it really requires for you to unlearn, right? 
in terms mm. of discarding the way you've done things. But for that to happen, you have to recognize other people's needs are as important as your own needs. So if you really want this collaboration, if this uh, relationship to work, then you need to recognize other individuals' needs as well. I love that. Like uh, unlearning by way of empathy. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I, I, while you're speaking, I, my mind goes to just how um, incredibly simple mm-hmm. this can all be. Like in my mind, unlearning can just be simplifying because I think of, um, let's say just three people who have a great idea and they want to make it happen. They can get in a garage and just build an amazing app or product or whatever. They can build a company from a garage, like ground up in weeks. And, you know, a large corporation can get three great talented people also together on a team and in that same time frame do much much less and and what is the difference between those two and to me it's it's their it's their motivation it's their drive it's their passion and it's the culture um we talk about startup cultures all the time and you're it's almost it's spoken like as a positive thing in many ways but i think what they're really getting at is that they don't have things to unlearn in those contexts. They can just learn from nothing. They just, it's simple. Um, so these large, so the large businesses have to unlearn so they can get this, so they can allow people to have the space to be a startup within their own space. And, and that's, that's something that just strikes me as very, um, so much less complex in my mind now uh, when it comes to unlearning. It's just discarding and kind of allowing people to work the way that they will do best. I think there's a little bit more responsibility though, when you have a larger organization and the complexity of that business is significantly different than when you're trying to build a product or an application from the ground up and you only have three people that you need to think about and consider. So if Mm. you have an organization that's 200,000 people, it looks really different because your decisions impact that many more people who are doing that many more jobs. And so it, it, you know, I think that's why the agility at scale is so significant because it does look different. Like we can't act like it's not different running a, a startup in a garage versus running a fortune 500 company, right? Like it is significantly more complex. And so the challenges are more complex and the people issues are more complex and being successful is more complex. And so being able to really think of others becomes challenging when it's 200,000 plus or, you know, an arbitrary large number. But if you just take this further, Mia, but if you were to look at it from teams inside of these large corporations and, you know, they're already siloed the way we've described it, right? They do divide and conquer approach anyhow. So if you look at it from those smaller groups or silos or departments or teams uh, with lesser number of people, and if if they're in the team and they start operating like a startup where they're able to like take all of these uh, restrictions or structures and forget the way that they used to do things and try to do it like from scratch, could we potentially and possibly still have similar type of results? And then hopefully that um, all comes together in a cumulative way, uh, you know, doing it at scale, like you were describing or asking about. I think, I think there's something to think there. 
if you were to take that same concepts to smaller teams. Yeah, and I think to play devil's advocate, it would be, you know, are they resourced the same way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and, and, and part of Agile, a big part of Agile is on how you build your teams. Like a lot of the practices of truly going agile are letting people select their own teams and choose their own projects and do the things that they think add the most value. That's actually, when you look at the highest level of that agility, that's that's the right way to build your teams. If you assign them, you're always going to get a little less out of it. But but to build on what Muhammad was saying and to be devil's devil's advocate, <laughs> I I think, I truly believe, and maybe this is just the, you kind of like the you know, you know, just optimist in me at times that, yes, we talk about the largest Fortune 500 companies, you're facing obviously different situations and scales. But I feel like those things that you mentioned around those obstacles that really get in the way of more people to worry about, I think they can be traced back to culture and behavior, not that it's solvable. I mean, you're not gonna get the efficiency of three people in a garage who just wanna get it done. But I think we can definitely strive for close because if you have a culture where it's very well known and felt that a mistake is okay. Because in, in that garage, if that guy makes a mistake, they're like, hey, it's just the three of us. All we can do is pick it up and, and push harder and get it done tomorrow. And unfortunately in the corporate workspace, a lot of times that's they spend the next few days blaming each other and worrying about whose fault it was and who gets punished. And that same time could have been spent in a culture that really allows the boss says, Hey guys, no big deal. We learned let's move on. And I think you can get close. I mean, I just, I call me a romantic, but I think it's possible. Um, and I know that's what we strive to do Mohammed every day. And it's, it's hard. It's definitely hard, but I'll get the door. I'll be right back. Hold on. <laughs> that reminds I, uh, me of an argument that we talk about. And Dr. Kilchey, I don't know if that's where you were going about being a romantic versus being a realist. I know. I love and, the romantic in Jeff. I do. <laughs> yes. I agree. As a well, romantic I'm, I'm, in I'm, my heart, I agree. I'm, I'm married guys. Sorry. I know. Of course. Of course. Um, no, but, you know, if you bring it back to this individual level um, and uh, if you take your ego out, <laughs> I think that that can solve a lot of problems. And, you know, when yeah. we think about wisdom, when we think about learning um, and when we think about, you know, those personal relationships, whether you're in a large company or a small company and two individuals interacting with each other, two leaders interacting with each other, two teams interacting with each other one failing, the other succeeding, both failing, I think at an individual level, at a very sort of simple level, uh, if you could start thinking about in terms of um, just removing ego from the situation, I I think uh, that can lead to much better unlearning, learning and relearning as well. You know, I think um, with with this, and I think that's a great point about, about ego, you know, I think we what I've noticed to really make unlearning work, I think I think we need two things. Number one, we need to stop enshrining our systems and processes like they're gospel, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's it's systems thinking, right? It's the understanding that like this system was originated from three people, five people sitting around a table solving the problem that was in front of them. It deserves nothing more than that recognition. The other thing that we need to, to do, I think, is, is and this is the ego point, is, 
is separate ourselves from the organization to, I think, a large degree. It doesn't mean that we're not dedicated. It doesn't mean that we're not interested in the mission and things like that. But what I've noticed is that when, and one feeds into the other, when senior leaders are promoted up through the ranks of an organization, then it's almost like they become an appendage of the organization Mm -hmm. where they're afraid to change the systems and processes because these are the systems and processes that allowed them to succeed. So how could they be wrong? And then we get this gospel thing happening. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, separating ego and then that system thinking piece, those are critical to unlearning. And Jason, I think with that, I think you know what undercuts all of this, I think, is a real trust and a real atmosphere of psychological safety. And I think with that, destigmatizing failure, mm-hmm. um, with that, a trust in teams like Jeff, what you were saying, I think, I think we can achieve that. I think it's making sure that our teams feel empowered <laughs> to be able to act as little startups within the, within the organization. But, you know, if, if they are conceptualizing an idea and then they start to list out all of the areas of bureaucracy that they're going to hit along the way, that's going to stifle anything that they're going to be able to come up with. So, you know, Jason, what you said about about the gospel of these organizational processes that we just hang on to for dear life. How do we start to look at those as they are inanimate objects and, you know, really looking at who are these systems serving at the end of the day? And whether that is incorporating some sort of a, you know, feedback loop in an organization where we re-examine our systems on a quarterly basis or on an annual basis, like we start to look at these things that could start to um, present as bureaucratic hurdles that stifle creativity. Yeah. I love this discussion because as I think about our audience and like, what, what is a takeaway here? I'm, I'm looking at this idea that a lot of the things we strive for, like even as we talk, we talk about all the things that should be happening. We talk about all the ways you should look at things and do things from cultural perspectives and process perspectives. I think a lot of the instinct is for a lot of that to sound appealing to some, or maybe it's a turnoff, I don't know. But either way, it sounds like a lot of work and sound like a lot of change and a lot of um, stress for people who are in decision-making positions. And I think the takeaway to me is that um, if you want to be able to have your team start this new learning and to achieve, if you want a team on your in your business that is that three-person startup that generates you your next big product and becomes, you know, catapults you into the future, you have to take this moment right now to focus on unlearning because those are the things that are preventing you from having one of those teams. And you have the talent probably in there you can probably find the passion from the right people that's probably hidden there but everything jason's saying every i mean everything everyone's saying has kind of pointed to the same conclusion that i'm having is that you know there's, there's just so much work to be done in the realm of what to discard and what to have the courage to get rid of mm-hmm. and try because it's not when we say failure is a, a path to success it's not just at the individual level where they're doing work an organization needs to embrace failure and be like i'm willing to get rid of this gospel to give people a chance to see what they're made of and that that to me resonates wholeheartedly and you know romantics unite 
we're, we can, we can win this thing guys. I think. Um, <laughs> and I think I'll it's also, you know, knowing that it not all, it's not a one size fits all that every organization, every problem, every person, every collective group has a different approach and their approach. If it's working, then it's working. It might need to change, but it could be different from their neighbor. Yeah. If you're just listening to audio, Muhammad's still here. He's just nodding his head. Whole, <laughs> I, I am so time. mesmerized with all of these discussions. Mm -hmm. um, my brain is like, oh my gosh, this is gold. I'm just processing stuff. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So. He's got a pen in hand. He's been taking notes. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> so to kind of, to kind of close this all out, um, you know, I think that uh, if you put the two episodes we've done on this topic together, we've, we've established where culture's at. We've been pretty clear about where it should be going. And now we're, we just talked about kind of trying to tie those, you know, get rid of these paradoxes that we might have in terms of how we see, um, you know, a, having a growth mindset about all this essentially, um, and how important that is. Um, is there anything else from you guys uh, or Muhammad, of course, you're, you know, welcome to join as on top on this, I, that you'd want to share as a takeaway for the listener. So if, if I'm listening to this, whether I'm a leader in the organization or even just in the middle or down the bottom, like what is something that I can practically take with me and start doing? Jason mentioned this earlier and I, I want to reiterate it. I think this whole year has been one big disorienting dilemma, layered upon disorienting dilemma. And Jason, you talked about leaning into that disorientation. And I think when we can start to, instead of straying away from that conflict, instead of, um, you know, turning our back to that, that uncomfortable feeling of, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to place it. Let's be more curious and let's inspect it and reflect on it. And I think that is where the real change comes. So I think that we can, you know, we're in this moment and I think that there's so much to be learned from uncomfortability. And I think if we can be a little brave and lean into that feeling of being uncomfortable and that vulnerability, I think so much learning can come from that. And I would, I would like to say that if there's one thing that COVID-19, this pandemic should teach us is that um, we cannot predict the future. Nobody knew in November 2019 what was going to happen in December, January, February, March, and we're back in December now, right? Um, so this idea of control, I think it is applicable at the organizational level, but it has to start at the individual level for each individual leaders. We have this... Um, unfortunate tendency to want to control things. Um, and I, uh, literature refers to it as the owned view, like you own it, right? When you own something, you wanna control it. And I think COVID-19 should teach us all that you cannot own it all. You need to give up control. Mm. Um, so that I would refer to as the unowned view, right? So in your interactions with others, in your interactions with yourself as well, uh, adopt an unowned view. 
uh, be, and you know, I think it's very similar to what Zoe and Jason talked about as, as well. Be curious and know that not everything that happens to you happens around you is completely within your control. So we have to learn to go with the flow sometimes as well. And when we learn to go with the flow uh, by seeking, sensing and sharing, wonderful things do happen to us. Um, and to be honest with you, I can share my personal example. Um, I think uh, I've grown as a person over the past 15, 20 years. Um, and as I embarked on this journey of um, self-growth, one thing that really helped me a lot was adopt an unowned view, knowing that I cannot control it all, knowing that um, you have to put aside your ego and then you have to look at other people's needs in order to move forward. And you can extend the same concept. Uh, right now I'm talking about the individual level, but you can extend the same concept to the organizational levels as well. As we talked previously, it's about a sense of responsibility um, to our community. It's a sense of responsibility to this planet, to this global society uh, as leaders, um, the decisions that we make impact not only us or 100 people or 400,000 people, they really impact um, a lot of individuals, they impact societies. So being very cognizant, adopting an unowned view, being in a state of perpetual, um, becoming, seeking, sensing, reflecting, um, putting aside your ego, I think uh, could, could help us move in the right direction to learn, unlearn and relearn. I think I want to add just one another thing to that too is Anshuman Prasad talks about the persistent interrogation of Eurocentrism in post-colonial theory. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that's really tangible that can be taken away along with uh, Dr. Kilji's unknown view is what, like, what are you interrogating within your sphere of responsibility, within your scope? Are you constantly questioning those things that are just sort of accepted as norms. And I think that'll lead you to a lot of interesting, um, a lot of interesting core, or I should say root cause of some issues. But I also think it's not always about the answer as much as it is about the question. You know, and I would, I would just build on these thoughts and, and say, um, that's right. I mean, like the question, right? And I think that like that leads me into a like a very practical thing. Slow down, like take a minute. And when somebody tells you when the vaccine hits and we kind of resume some sort of normal, what kind of normal do you want that to be? I mean, like this is a wonderful opportunity for unlearning. Like there's a one line uh, from one of my favorite authors, his name's John O'Donohue. Wonderful guy. He's an Irish guy no longer with us, unfortunately. And he says, and I think this gets at, at Dr. Kilji's point. He said, I would love to live like a river flows carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. Mm. I love that, right? Like it speaks to this, like this curiosity, this is like the, the wonder, right? Like the lack of control that if we embrace it, like we can experience as leaders and we can bring into organizations. Well, if there ever was an episode to just watch over or listen over again, um, this is it. I know I will because I did not take notes and there are a lot of things that um, everyone has said that I need to uh, retain. 
So hopefully um, listeners got as much out of it as I did. This was an amazing conversation that has really opened up a lot for me personally. And I really appreciate, of course, the Humanizing Initiative, Jason, Mia, Zoe, Shaista. Thank you guys so much for this conversation. A um, lot of insightful golden nuggets to 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 take from this. Mohammed, thank you for joining as well. This was de- definitely a wonderful experience. And um, uh, I, I'm hoping we continue this. Um, I think we're planning on continuing this, this series in some way so that we can uh, continue unpacking these topics. And there's, I think there have been just five-minute segments here that I think could make whole other episodes. So I'm definitely going to dig into that and explore that opportunity. Uh, here at Love is a Business Strategy, we're posting new episodes every Tuesday, and we hope you really enjoyed this one and the other ones. So please, if you want to leave any feedback, we'd love to hear it at softway.com slash labs, L-A-A-B-S. And all, as always, uh, a like, a review, a five-star review on Apple and Spotify are always great. And with that, thank you all for this conversation. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it, and we will see you soon.